Good morning, everybody. I hope everyone is, is well. I know that for some it's been really difficult um, with what's going on at home, what's going on with the jobs. Um, but through all the trials, through all the hardships, it's important that we remember that the Lord is with you. He's, he knows what's going on. You may not understand it, but there's a purpose. He has a perfect will. And um, if we continue just to rely on him, to trust in him, he will get us through them. He will get us through these trials. And again, we may not see the, see the lessons, but these are lessons that will help us to grow in our walk, in our faith in him, in our relationship with him. And it's always a good thing. Where uh, he understands what's going on in your life. And for those of you watching and listening online on Facebook and on YouTube, um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for checking us out. Um, if you're watching this later on after I edit it and post it back up, also I thank you for for uh, taking a moment to press play. If you have any comments, questions, um, please feel free to leave them on the Facebook comment page and also on the bottom of the YouTube video. Uh, if you like what the sermon, if you like, you know, if you're interested in getting hearing more of our sermons, click the notification button and you, we will let you know when the new videos are posted up. Also during the week, I do post two minute, two minute short sermon clips of what is going on here, what I'm teaching on. And if you don't mind, also those that are here and those that are watching, sharing those, share, putting those out there and sharing them with other people. Uh, maybe be a message that others need to hear, that want to hear. So that's, that's definitely uh, a way to, to put the message out there, to share the message of Jesus Christ. If you want more information about our church, um, please feel free to check out our website. Uh, that is fvcelp.org. And there you will find um, most information about our church, COVID guidelines, um, who we are, our mission statement, our statement of beliefs. Uh, also, if the Lord has put it in your heart to give, that there's a PayPal button in the bottom of the page, and you can also do, do that. Um, again, if you have any questions, also there's uh, a number there, email, and you can get a hold of me there, and I'll respond as soon as possible. All right, so this week, we're going to be continuing on with actually finishing off with chapter 22 and then beginning a portion of chapter 23. In those passages that we are going to be looking at today, we're going to see how Jesus was treated while he was in custody and both the political and religious trials that he underwent before he was condemned to die. As you can see, I've titled this morning's message, A Gross Miscarriage, Miscarriage of Justice. The Cambridge Dictionary defines miscarriage of justice as a situation in which someone is pushed, punished by the law of courts 
for a crime they have not committed. And that's essentially what we're going to be seeing today in order to show us how basically to deal with it when we come to face face to face with it. Maybe when we know others who have come face to face with it. And, you know, because it, it's going to happen. We live in a fallen world and there's a lot of people that don't understand that you know, uh, no matter what kind of system we have, no matter what kind of justice system we, whether it's the most extreme kind of justice system or the most lenient, there will always be injustice. And we may face it one day in one way or another. So before we begin, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you brought us here and we are thankful for the the time of worship and Lord we want to continue to dedicate this time to you Lord so now as we open up your word Lord we want to hear from you we want to know what you're what you're saying through through the words written here in your word Lord May we remember how good and how powerful, how wonderful, how merciful you are. That even through everything that you went through, that you were always in control. And that you always trusted the Father. Because he had a perfect will and plan. So again, we dedicate this time to, to you and... Fill this room with your spirit, Lord. Remove all distractions. Open our hearts, our hearts and ears to hear from you now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 22. So last week we left off with Peter denying his Lord. He heard the, Jesus told him he was going to hear the rooster, that by the time he hears the rooster crow, he would have denied him three times. And sure enough, that happened here, the rooster crow, he remembered, and he went out and cried bitterly. He wept bitterly. So now we focus back onto Jesus here. Luke chapter 22 Verse 63, the word of God says, the men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need 
any more testimony. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth? And I'll stop there. If you've all been watching what's been going on in several, and I've mentioned it before, what's been going on in several cities in our nation, one of the most common slogans that's being repeated over and over again is no justice, no peace. Now, I won't, I'm not, my plan isn't to get into the whole dis discussion and to get into, into it all a bit. This term can mean many things to different people. But it seems like lately it, people are using it to say that as long as they see or perceive or believe that injustice is occurring, that they will not be acting peacefully. They will continue to riot, to destroy, to burn, and to hurt people. Now, again, we as Christians, we need to keep in mind that that's not what we are called to do. That's not what Jesus has called us. That's not what the Holy Spirit, that's not who he is. The Holy Spirit is not, uh, he's not chaos. You know, he's, he's a loving, peaceful God. And we need to keep that in mind that we need to refrain, keep ourselves away from those kind of behaviors. And when we are feeling that rage, we need to quickly come to the Lord. As difficult as it is, I know there are times I just want to act out. But again, I, I digress. I don't want to go into that rabbit hole. Um, but the reality is, as I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon here, or beginning of, the, of our time together, is that we live in a fallen world, and there will always be injustice. And without Jesus Christ, there will never be true peace. Well, in an event that pales in comparison to anything that we've seen or read about in the news lately, here we're told about the cruel treatment and mockery, and the mockery of justice that the Messiah had to go through after he'd been arrested. If you were with us last week, I mentioned that the Gospels record that Jesus went through six trials. Well, here in, in the passages we just read, he gives us information about the one before the Sanhedrin. However, Luke gives us some insight on how our Lord was viciously treated before his trial, before the senior leaders of Judaism at that time. In verse 63, he tells us the men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. Now, these men may have been the Roman soldiers or the temple police that were with, that were part of the mob that came to arrest Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. But here's the thing, as guards, one of their chief duties was to protect their prisoner from anyone who wanted to harm them and to ensure that they got fair treatment and justice. But instead of acting as guardians, instead of looking out for their prisoner's welfare, 
they were permitted to verbally and physically, and I will also add psychologically, harm or abuse Jesus as if he were the worst kind of criminal, as if he was a dirty animal. This abuse is also described in Matthew chapter 26, verse 67. There it says that they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him. So I want you to picture that as Jesus was there in his cell, wherever they were holding him. Whenever they want, whenever the guards wanted to, they just would approach him and slap him and just spit in his face for no reason at all, just because, just because they, they felt like it. They were given that permission to do so. They then turned their horrific behavior into a cruel game by blindfolding him, striking him. And this can be either hand strikes or kicks or elbows. But they started striking him and taunting him by asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? Here's the thing, though. If Jesus had drawn on his rightful resources of divine power and authority, he could have told them exactly who it was that struck him. And if he wanted to, he could have also told them many other things that they didn't know about themselves, things that they were struggling with, issues that maybe they were dealing with at home or personally, maybe pains from past uh, trauma. He could have told them so much more. Yet, in all this abuse, all this, all this stuff that they were doing to him, our Lord refused to draw on the resources of his divine power and authority. And instead, went through all the abuse as a spirit-strengthened man. So even as they were saying many other blasphemous things to him, he was always in control, even as he yielded himself to the Father's plan. And he did this to demonstrate to us that the proper reply to hate is not more hate, but love. He did it to show us the importance of trusting in God to vindicate us when we're being treated in a similar fashion because of our faith. He allowed himself to suffer in a way, in that way, so that those who are abused and humiliated can find refuge in a God who knows what they experience. So when we imagine or see this picture, we shouldn't look at it as a picture of defeat, but instead we ought to look at this as one of many of Jesus' victories. Why? Well, let me share with you what Spurgeon said. His persecutors could not make him give way to anger. They could not destroy his mercy. They could not stay they could not slay his love. They could not cause him to think of himself. They could not make him declare that he would go no further with his work of saving sinners now that men began to scoff him. 
to smite him and to dis despitefully use him. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, since this is the example that our Lord has given us, let us not fear what men can do to us. Instead, let us hold on to the words written in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, before moving on to verse 66, I want to remind you that our Lord had already gone through two trials. One with Annas, mentioned in verse 54, and a second that Luke here doesn't mention, but that Matthew does talk about in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Had, these, had this been an ordinary case, these initial trials would have been held during the day, in public, with the accusers and witnesses present. But this wasn't an ordinary case. These trials were held at night, on the Passover, in private homes, and with no credible evidence or witnesses. Therefore, in reality, these first two trials that were at night had no legal standing. And the men responsible knew that they themselves were crossing their own legal lines. So they waited until the morning to have an official trial where the case against Jesus would be decided on by all members of the Sanhedrin. Now, for those who may not know, the Sanhedrin were a group of men who were the members of Judaism's main leadership council. They were the elders, the most knowledgeable, the most supposedly wise Jewish elders that were around, the most prominent elders. And, it's, and this is where Luke picks up in the next part of his narrative. He tells us in verse 66 that when daylight came, and that typically was around 5 or 6 a.m., the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought Jesus before their Sanhedrin. The trial opened with the main question, the main question that they all wanted to know. If you are the Messiah, now, here's the thing. As some of the highest-ranking religious Jews of the day, this was a question that they could have answered themselves if they had taken the life, words, and actions of Jesus and held them side by side with what Scripture said, with the words of God. No doubt if they had done that, and done that diligently, the evidence would have proven that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah that all of them were waiting for. This therefore leaves us with two possible reasons for asking this question. Either they hadn't exercised due diligence, proving Jesus correct when he called them blind guides, 
in Matthew chapter 15, 14. Or they were deliberately rejecting all the evidence which also proved Jesus right when he called them whitewashed tombs in, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. So whichever it was, the Lord already knew. He knew that they had already made up their minds and changing it with more truths or even with miraculous signs would be useless. That's why he responded back, if I do tell you, you will not believe. Again, making the point that neither evidence nor reason would change their plans to indict and to kill him. And when it comes to talking to people, I think you've heard me mention, you got to know who you're talking to and whether they're open to hear anything. Because if they're already convinced in their minds that they're not going to hear truth, then you're just wasting your breath. You're just, you know, you're just going to be arguing. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get mad. And then you're going to start acting out in the flesh. So if they're in their mind about something, then it's, then think about what you're going to say next. Cause you know, they, they, it could be the wrong thing and it can get you more mad and frustrated. He then, after this, exposed their prejudice by pointing out in verse 68 that asking them what they thought would also be useless because they wouldn't answer. They weren't going to answer him honestly. Nevertheless, even in the face of their dishonesty and bias and knowing how his answer would be twisted by them, he actually did answer their question. His answer was an honest and more complete answer than what they expected. And Jesus basically told them in verse 69, Yes, I am the Messiah. And one day I will prove it to you, to your satisfaction and dismay. Quoting a portion of Psalm 110, verse 1. And applying the messianic title, Son of Man, to himself, the Savior affirms that he will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Mark 16, 19 tells us that this is where he went when he was taken up to heaven. And Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says that that's where he is now interceding for us. No doubt this statement would have caught their attention since it was known that the right hand of God is the highest place of honor, authority, and power. So by claiming this honor, by claiming that he will be sitting or he's going to be sitting at the right hand of God, Jesus was essentially claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God. Well, the council also understood what he was implying. But in order to convict them of blasphemy, they needed an indisputable confession. So they all asked, in almost a frustrating way, Are you then 
the Son of God? To which the Lord confidently replied, You say that I am. Now, if you read, anyone reading these verses, those, those words, may look at that response and see and tell and maybe say oh, that seems a little vague he doesn't outright say that he is but to those jews that were there those who were present and hearing this they knew that this was equivalent to saying yes i am the son of god again we have to we have to take ourselves sometimes out of our western way our american way of thinking and and sometimes when you say things or when people say things, to us it may mean one thing, but to another group of people, another culture, it may mean something totally different. And so when Jesus, again, says that you say that I am, they actually understood it to mean that, they understood it to mean that, yes, I am the Son of God. Jesus had now put himself on equality with God and had accepted the title of the Son of God from the Psalms. Now, if this wasn't true, he definitely could have argued that he made no such claim and that his words were misinterpreted. But we don't see that he did. He didn't complain. He didn't argue. He didn't cry. He remained silent because he wasn't going to argue against something that was true. He is both God and the Son of God from the Psalms. So if that's what they wanted to kill him for, then so be it. Now, I also want to point out something that stood out to me and that I hope will have stood out to you. Almost every cult and every non-Christian religion diminishes the deity of Jesus Christ when they say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Yet what's ironic here is that the chief priest and the scribes began to carry out his crucifixion because of the opposite. When Jesus answered them the way that he did, they understood that he was claiming to be God. So you see, the issue of Jesus' deity is foundational and essential to our faith. Why couldn't he simply, why couldn't he be simply the first created one, as the Mormons claim? Why could he be a good teacher, but not really God? Simply. Because if Jesus was not God, then God did not die for you. And if that's not what he did, then the entire gospel loses its power. So ladies and gentlemen, God did not simply create a sacrificial son to take care of, this, take care of the sin of mankind. Think more closely. No, God himself died for you. He died for each and every single one of you. 
that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he became man, ought to move you. I don't know, even think, thinking about it gives me goosebumps, but it ought to move you. It ought to break you and touch you in a way that nothing else possibly could. The mystery of godliness is great, Timothy writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that God became man. Well, the end of Jesus' religious trials had concluded. But now there was a problem. There was a new problem. In their law, the penalty for blasphemy was death. So although they now had the verdict they wanted, they had caught him in his words and they had decided they were going to put him to death. They wanted to put him to death. They didn't have the authority to put prisoners to death. That judgment could only be rendered by a high-ranking Roman official who at that time was none other than Pontius Pilate, the Roman the governor of the Roman province of Judea. However, those religious leaders, those, that group, that council, the Sanhedrin, knew that it would take more than just a religious charge of blasphemy to convince them, to convince Pilate of why Jesus was a criminal worthy of death. So they had to shift their strategy from religious to political. So let's look at that now by picking up and by going now to the next chapter, chapter 23, and picking up in verse 1. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priest and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. He stirs up all the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he started even to hear. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that, he was, finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who, also, who was also during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer. The chief priests the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him and dressed him in bright clothing and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders and the people 
and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they cried out together, Take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept the pressure. They kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. As you can see here, we're told about the three stage, the three strange trials of Jesus's, uh, of Jesus Christ. The three trials were his initial trial with, with Pilate, then with Herod, and then back with Pilate. In verse 1 of chapter 23, Luke tells us that their whole assembly, and that is the Sanhedrin and all those that were in attendance, and this was just a large group of people, they rose up and brought him before Pilate. And upon arriving, instead of questioning Jesus, what they were doing before, the Jewish leaders shifted over to their strategy. They began to accuse him of three things. Remember again that he shifted from religion to political. Their first accusation was that he was misleading our nation. Now this was uh, sort of a general charge of stirring up insurrection sentiments. Their second accusation was that he was opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. In other words, Jesus was encouraging insubordination to the Roman authorities in an area that mattered, that would have mattered most to those authorities, their pocketbooks, paying taxes. Because the only way they would get rich and have the money to, to do whatever they wanted to do was by collecting taxes. So now they were accusing Jesus of telling people not to pay those taxes. But let's remember, back in chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, that's not what he said at all. That's not what he taught. He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. So, this was clearly a false charge. 
Their third accusation was that Jesus was calling himself the Messiah, a king. This last accusation revealed that the Jewish people considered any claim to be the Messiah as a claim to be a king. From this charge, they also wanted Pilate to conclude that Jesus intended to form his own literal armed and military rebellion against Rome. They were just planting those seeds. Oh, he's saying he's the king. So, look, he already has 12 disciples and he has many more that thousands possibly that are following him. You need to be scared. You need to think about it. You need to worry. He's, you know, people are calling him king. So they were planting those ideas in his, in his mind. It was this last charge that interested Pilate. So he followed up with a direct question to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' answer was likewise direct. You say so. Now, in John chapter 18, verses 33 to 37, we're given a more fuller reply to what he said. And I'll read that to you real quick. There, it says, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Well, in spite of what appeared to be an admission of guilt, Pilate rendered his verdict. I find no grounds for charging this man. It wasn't enough evidence. It wasn't enough to give him the death penalty. He didn't want to kill him. His accusers, though, weren't, as e weren't so easily dissuaded. And in verse 5, they kept insisting on the first charge of the insurrection that the governor had apparently ignored. However, when Pilate heard them mentioned that, uh, they mentioned the word Galilee, it immediately sparked his attention. He wanted to know if the man they brought him was a Galilean. And once he found out that Jesus, once he found that out and found out that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, it was the opening he needed to get this problem out of his lap, to avoid further involvement into the matter. You see, he already had, at that time, he already had two strikes against him 
people in Rome were starting to pay attention to what was going on in that region. His first strike was that there were riots that had erupted when he ordered his soldiers bearing insignias, insignias, which the Jews perceived as idols, to be placed on the Temple Mount. Again, riots erupted when this happened. His second strike was for getting, uh, getting caught paying for the construction of an aqueduct with money from the temple treasury. That money was supposed to go and pay for temple repairs and maybe to help the poor and, and the widows and the orphans. And, um, but he was siphoning that money and using it to pay for government projects that were supposed to be paid with government funds, with taxes. So again, it tells you that he was pocketing these taxes, a lot of this money for himself. Therefore, he was in political hot water. And no doubt, it relieved Pilate to pass this problem onto Herod. So he sent Jesus to Herod Antipas who was also in Jerusalem for the Passover. He didn't have to go far. Now at that time, he was the ruler of the entire region of Galilee. And was this, this Herod was the same person who murdered John the Baptist for condemning his illicit uh, relationship with his brother's wife. And this was also the same Herod whom Jesus called that fox. In Luke chapter 13, verse 32. Now, according to verse 8, Herod, 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 Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He was like, yeah, Jesus, you're here. Why? Well, for a while, he had wanted to see him. He had wanted to meet him because of what he had heard about him. His reputation, now Jesus, by now Jesus' reputation had preceded him and pretty much everyone in that area knew who he was and what he was doing. But here's the thing, instead of being curious about what the Son of God had to say, instead of being curious, uh, Jesus, sit down and I, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to gain wisdom, knowledge, and, and I want to maybe learn from you. All he really wanted to see was some miracle working performance. He just wanted to see a show. He wanted Jesus to be this magician and, and to wow him, to astonish him with miracles. So he began to question him. He began to ask, ask these questions and that would provoke him to maybe perform a miracle. But no matter how many questions Herod asked, the Savior did not answer any of them. He just stood there and stayed quiet. This is not the silence of one, of one Jesus meek and mild, but the silence of a superior not condescending to lower himself to the childish level of Herod. See, that's what Herod was doing. He was acting like a little kid. Show me, show me, show me a miracle. Come on, show me. 
Show me what you can do. And Jesus was, wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna do that. Once again, this was an example that through it all, Jesus was in control. However, his accusers were again vehemently pressing their case. But in spite of how violent their accusations became, our Lord continued to say nothing until Herod realized, until he finally got it, that he wasn't going to get Jesus to do what he wanted him to do. So Herod, with his soldiers, resorted to contemptuous and juvenile mockery. This vile treatment culminated by having Jesus dressed in bright clothing and then having him sent back to Pilate that way, almost as if this was a joke to him. Here's my present back to you, and look how beautiful he looks now. Look how royal he looks now. Well, I guess Herod or Pilate must have thought it was funny. He must have got the joke because Luke notes in verse 12 that prior to this, Herod and Pilate had been enemies. They, uh, there was some beef going on between them. But now, after this, they became friends. It seems that the shared experience over a common threat squashed whatever differences or grievances they had with each other. Well, even though things were good between them, the reality is that Pilate now had to make a decision about Jesus that Herod didn't want to make. So he called a hurried meeting with the chief priest, the leaders, and the leaders of the people. The scene then unfolded in three parts. First, Pilate rendered his, or what he thought would be his final verdict. He explained to them that neither he nor Herod had been able to find any evidence of disloyalty on the part of Jesus, that he had done nothing that to deserve death, but to appease the leaders and the crowd, he proposed to have Jesus whipped and then just letting him go. The second part of the scene is found in verse 18. The crowds, no doubt, the, the, again, the mob, the, the assembly, probably egged, egged on by the religious leaders of Sanhedrin, all those religious leaders that were there, they expressed their displeasure with Pilate's verdict. They demanded that not only Jesus be taken away and crucified, yelling again, crucify him, crucify him, but also, in a tragic irony, that a genuine insurrectionist and murderer, a man named Barabbas, be released and said, Again, is that do you guys get that? Like they he had Jesus had done nothing wrong but to help and to love and to care for people, to minister to them. And now they were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. For what? What did he do? Did absolutely nothing. Now they were saying, Hey, we you know what? Take him. We we want Barabbas. Yeah, he's our hero. He was, you know, he's someone important. He was, 
you know, he was the guy in charge of the, of the riots and the mayhem and the destruction and the murder. We want to be led by him. The choice between Barabbas, who again had been indicted for insurrection, and Jesus, the choice was between them two, Barabbas and Jesus, whose ministry would be based upon resurrection. To this day, there are those who want to bring the kingdom violently, politically, or legislatively. But the Lord's kingdom is not of this world. Barabbas thought that he could bring the kingdom with revolution. Only Jesus can bring the true Greek kingdom with regeneration. The crowd wanted activity, not spirituality. They wanted insurrection, not resurrection. They wanted to do something, not be something. As I say this, I'm reminded, again, I picture these images that I've been seeing on TV and on the internet. I think that's what we see going on in many of these cities. They just, they, they're not looking for anything spiritually. They're looking to, to, to do something. They're, they want in insurrection, not resurrection. They, they want answers now. They don't want to wait. They don't want to look for them and seek them. Well, Again, they wanted Barabbas. This shift, this scene shifts back and forth with Pilate reiterating his verdict of Jesus, Jesus' innocence, and his intent to have Jesus whipped and released. Don't be acting this way, he tells them. I, uh, you don't have to do this. I, I, I can just whip him. I can whip him good, and and then I'll release him. Doesn't have to. He doesn't. His death. You don't have. This doesn't have to end in his death. But the crowds kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that Jesus be crucified. In the final tragic scene of this trial, a spineless, a cowardly pilot capitulated to the will of the people. Verse 24, he granted their demand. It says in verse 25 that he released the rebel and the murderer they were asking for and handed an innocent man to their, to their will to suffer the death penalty on the cross. As all this was going on, Jesus was just watching. Jesus was watching every single one of them screaming from the top of their lungs with that angry look in their face, crucify him, crucify him. What do you think he, with all the love that he had in his heart, all the compassion, knowing that he was going to die on the cross for their sins, what do you think he was feeling inside? Just sad, probably, probably more. I know that he wasn't angry. 
He wasn't mad, but he was just heartbroken. Pilate did this for no other reason than to just protect his political power and position. Now, what this does is it shows us that Pilate was a complex character. He openly said that Jesus was innocent, yet he permitted him to be beaten and condemned and condemned him to die. He carefully questioned Jesus and even trembled at his answers. But the truth of the word did not make a difference in his decisions. He wanted to be popular and not right. He was more concerned about his reputation than he was character. In that moment, as in that moment, as he was uh, saying these things and in front of Jesus, he heard two voices very clearly: the voice of his conscience and the voice of his crowd. And sadly, he succumbed to the former. Historians tell us that shortly after this event, Pilate went into isolation in the island of Sicily. Approached years later by a disciple of Jesus, he was asked if he remembered Jesus of Nazareth. A blank look came over his face as he said, Jesus of Nazareth? I don't remember a thing about him. Yet so haunted was Pilate that he shortly thereafter hung himself. If Herod had silenced the voice of God, then Pilate smothered the voice of God. He had his opportunity and he wasted it. How tragic it is when any of us give in to the loud voice of the crowd instead of submitting to the still small voice of the spirit within us. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the voice of the Spirit of God that's in you? That even if, if even this is what I, I, I truly believe, the Bible shows us that even if you walk away, that burning flame of the Holy Spirit, that voice is still, He's still in you. And now with all the muck that's inside your heart, it's, it's hard for him to, to speak to you loudly and clearly. But I know again from experience that at times you can hear it and I've heard it and many times I've ignored it. This is why it's so important that you maintain that relationship with the Lord, that you not fall into these and when into these temptations, and when you do, that you get back up and and ask for forgiveness and keep on getting up and walking with the Lord. Can that brighter that fire burns inside of you? The fire of the Holy Spirit, the louder His voice will be. Are you listening to the world? Are you listening to other voices? Are you heeding what they're telling you? Or are you listening to the Holy Spirit that's inside of you? I'm going to 
stop there. This is going to be another long chapter that might take us maybe a couple more weeks. But these were the trials of Jesus. How he was treated by the guards, by how he was treated by the religious. He, he didn't even have a chance to defend himself. But again, how he was treated before Pilate and, and Herod. This was clearly a gross a miscarriage of justice. So when we hear about these events going on around the world or around our nation, about injustice happening, we have to we need to remember that there was no greater injustice than what Jesus experienced here, what he went through here. This was absolutely appalling. And anyone reading this should be should be appalled and should be like, I, I, I can't believe this happened to him, but we need to remember this was part of the plan. He needed to go through this. He needed, this needed to happen. And sadly, the people that he was there to die for, they didn't want him. They wanted Barabbas. And that's what, again, what we see going on today. They don't want him. They want somebody else. Somebody else that's going to fit into their mold, that's going to maybe give them what they want a revolutionary, a fighter. Sad. Again, I, you know, it, it, it really is appalling that one minute they, and maybe some of these people were there at the on Palm Sunday, welcoming him into Jerusalem, screaming praises to him and saying that, you know, he was the son of David. And now, those loud voices, just like those loud voices that are being heard today of no justice, no peace, and ACAB, and um, all those ugly names, they were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Well, if you spent your entire life or the majority of your life saying those words, saying, telling, raising your fist up in the air at the sky and saying, I don't believe you, Jesus, and you know, you were better off dead than alive. I don't need you in my life. If you spent your majority of your life that way and now you see that you understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he did all this for you. And next week we're going to be 
talking about, we're going to be sharing, or I'm going to be, we're going to be where Jesus actually made his way to the cross and him dying. But, but here, again, he did all this for you. And if you're ready to become a born-again believer, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and, and you're ready to surrender your heart to him, you want to be led by Jesus, you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, then I want to offer you an opportunity to come to the cross and become born again. So wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and with all sincerity, with all your heart, pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And right now I repent of my sins. I ask that you I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I now turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you prayed that, if you prayed that, I want you to get a hold of us, and we want to help you in your next steps, and we want to hear from you. Let we want to hear what, how the, how and when and why you prayed that prayer, and we want to celebrate with you. Um, that according to what the Bible says, that you are a new creature. The old has passed away, and God has created something new. So again, reach out to us. We want to invite you here if you're in the area to to El Pass to uh, Fresh Vision Church here in the corner of Hondo Pass and Gateway. Um, if you need more information, of course, you can get a hold of me. And I hope that you're blessed this upcoming week and I look forward to seeing you next week. So be blessed and farewell.